RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Yes, you are listening to episode 51 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I interview Nick Winkleman, Head of Athletic Performance and Science with the IRFU uh, yeah once again a great guest to have on someone with some uh, amazing experience and working in a great position uh, with a great team um, so I'm sure you'll you'll get tons out of it a lot of uh, uh, chat about his uh, research and work on queuing for um, especially around speed development so I'm sure you'll get tons out of this uh, as always give it a listen and let us know what you think hi Nick welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast great to have you on why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about your background and some of the teams and athletes you've worked with. Yeah, Jamie, well, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on. So background-wise, I've uh, been in strength conditioning for 15 years now. Uh, for the last three years, I've worked for Irish Rugby as the head of athletic performance and science. And then prior to that, I worked for a company called Exos, formerly known as Athletes Performance uh, Stateside, for about 10 years. So in my earlier job, primarily was focusing on working with athletes in the NFL, uh, working with a lot of elite military, and kind of balanced my time between strength conditioning, specifically working on speed development and movement skill development on the field as a primary emphasis point, and then as well as running the, the coach education side of things for Exos, which brought me face-to-face with many, many different sports and sport coaches. So for me, it's always been a balance of strength and conditioning and coaching the coaches in, in probably equal measure. Uh, since coming over to Ireland, you know, my job is, is very, very diverse. I work across all of our national teams as well as our four uh, professional teams. So from that perspective, all of athletic performance fundamentally rolls up into my remit. And from a, a job spec perspective, I, I spend equal measures of time working with our, our people, so coaching coaches once again, working directly with our players in varying capacities, and then just really making sure that our, our systems here within Irish rugby, when I say systems, I'm talking GPS, uh, we talk about player management, load management, everything to do with the data and the data analytics. That falls within my, my remit, ensuring we have good quality systems and continuity all across the country. No, sounds sounds really interesting and like you know a great role to be have that coach education and hands on as well with those international players. Now, with your your experiences from Exos and and different sports in over in the states, where do you think you've you've kind of come in and said I can make an impact um, with Irish rugby? You know, the first the first six months of the role very much so was getting boots on the ground and understanding where we were strong where we had opportunities for growth. And the reality is, you know, there was there was far more uh, good, let's say, than opportunities. But some of the key ones that we as a collective, and I want to highlight that point of identified, is just in the overall, I think, movement skill of the player. If you look at where rugby 
in general is moving. You know, you can see it. Uh, it's, a, it's a far more dynamic game. Uh, everyone needs to have the possibility of being a ball carrier, you know, first receiver, line break. It's not necessarily just about size anymore, albeit you need to have that upfront size. You need to be physical in and around the contact space and in the scrum. But at the same time, we need players across all 15 positions to be able to move side to side, to be able to pass, to be able to carry. So a big thing that we've been working on is just upgrading, if you would, the movement skills across linear speed and multidirectional speed of all the player base. And, and really starting young, trying to look at it from the standpoint of movement literacy and our long-term player development plans and trying to establish good movement habits, so to speak, with our youngest age grade and academy-oriented players, but bringing that all the way through to the national team. So I think building on so much of the good, it's a matter of just really emphasizing movement skill development and making sure our players can move any direction on command and at will. And I think that's probably been a primary area of emphasis in various guises over the last three years for us. That's cool. And, and you know, without giving any of your secrets away, I suppose, <laughs> what, what, what sort of approaches have you brought in, you know, maybe at the, those lower levels to, you know, get it in grassroots? Yeah, no, it's a really, really good, good question. I mean, as you've already highlighted, you know, a big part of my world has always been coach education. I'm a firm believer that, Coach development is player development. And the more we can invest in our people, uh, at the end of the day, the people that reap those rewards fundamentally are not just the coaches, but also the players. And that has been our primary mechanism to get this information across. So we run a pretty robust uh, professional development model across national, provincial, and individual sectors, meaning we have our national events. We also deploy things directly at a provincial level and everybody keeps a professional development plan. So if you look at those three tiers, the way we've approached movement skill development is especially when I had first come on board, we ran a number of centralized events where we targeted linear speed, where we targeted multi-directional speed. And we brought in speakers uh, from outside of Ireland to talk about it and across sport. And then inevitably, we take that information and, you know, it might be myself collaborating with one of our provincial strength conditioning coaches. We'll run seminars for the, the community side of the game. So we'll have clubs and we'll have schools attend just for a two-hour workshop on a Tuesday evening, for example. And they'll come in and we'll talk about movement literacy. We'll talk about what is effective linear movement mechanics look like and we'll go through the sequence of drills or activities one can use in a warm-up and we'll talk about the key technical model that they should be looking for when they're coaching it themselves so you know we try to apply this information both centrally but also getting it out into the community primarily through through professional development and through educational opportunities that's really that's really cool yeah definitely the, the way to target it and like I said, you get the grassroots right and you know you should increase the whole increase the whole talent pool um you know the movement mechanics of those then it just feeds everything through doesn't it um what so kind of looking at the i guess the rfu as a whole what are some of the um the challenges you face at, at national level compared to club level? but also i guess it'd be interesting for some people to sort of see the difference in the, the setup with the union and the provinces compared to other places like for instance in england with the, the, the premiership in england being very very separate entities 
Yeah. Well, I think you've nailed it there. You know, one of the advantages that Ireland has, and there's other unions that are modeled this way, is because, you know, we're, we're a small nation and we only have so many professional sides, we are able to be centralized. And by being centralized, we can operate as a team of teams. And I love that concept because while everyone is still independent, right? We have the four professional teams that, that still want to beat each other during the inner pros, right? They have to share an asset, in this case, our players with the national team. They're all separate, but at the same time, we all see a common mission. And, you know, when we look at the whole idea of, you know, the rising tide raises all ships, that's kind of the approach that we bring to this. So, you know, if we look at some of the challenges, most of the challenges are are static challenges. They're, they're never going to change, right? You, you only get a national team player, let's say, before the Six Nations two weeks out. And you're never going to change the fact, hopefully, if your professional sides are going well, they're going to have their European competition coming up right against that fringe. So, you know, Jamie, these are all realities that we have to face. So how do we approach them? Well, we approach them by trying to bring continuity where continuity makes sense and autonomy, where autonomy makes sense. So from a continuity perspective, we're trying to bring together shared mental models. Let's say, let's give one example around GPS and just simply asking the question, how do we want to approach training load? You know, what are the optimal training loads for performance? And then how do we manage those training loads at an individual level to, as best we can, reduce any unnecessary risk of injury? So at the end of the day, if we're able to have a shared database, which we do, where we can look at the journey of a player through the Pro 14, through Europe in the lead up to a Six Nations, for example, we can have ongoing conversations with the respective provincial heads and ensure that we're putting that player in an optimal position from a game minutes perspective, but also a loading perspective on and off the pitch so that when they come into national team camp, they are literally fit for the purpose of, of the kind of training they're going to go through. And at the end of the day, that's in service of the player, but it's also in service of both teams. And with that continuity, what it allows us to do is say, hey, we have four different professional entities. All of them feed into one team whether it be the under 20s or be the men's national team, right, or even the women's national team. And if we have good continuity around the principles, right, not necessarily the methods, because not everyone's going to train the same, Jamie, and, and that we, we, we'd be walking a fine line to be mandating that methods have to be the same, so we don't. But as long as the principles around exposures and training and how many high-speed efforts, let's say, over a seven to 10-day period, if all of those are aligned, we have good optics around the dashboards that represent that information, and we have good eventual. I think some of the greatest challenges that most unions face, in particular with players coming in and out of camp, we can we can't completely avoid them, but we can start to manage them far better. And you know, it's still a work in progress, but I think we're making strong strides in that direction. Yeah, it's definitely a massive advantage. You know, having players come in, they they kind of. Know, or know that their environment at club level or province level in your case is very similar to you know the step up to international level there's a smoother transition whereas other other uh, clubs international teams there'll be such a, a disparity in in the way they're training 
in terms of the principles, let alone the methods, that it's it's a massive shock to the system sometimes. So it's a huge advantage to have there. Um, now, Nick, this is a question we ask all the guests on the podcast, and it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? Well, you know, I probably adopted one of those views because it was shared with me from a diversity of areas. And probably that's been this whole concept traditionally of an over-dependence on size and strength. And, you know, you've probably heard that time and time again. And for me, it's, I wouldn't want to throw that out as a blanketed statement. So I think the biggest mistake, if I was to put it in my terms, is not having a balanced view of their physical development. And, you know, how does one gain a balanced view of their physical development? In my opinion, Jamie, you got to work back from the pitch. You got to work back from the game you are trying to thrive within. So in principle, I think the way one can approach that intuitively, if you're an athlete, uh, let alone analytically, if you're a coach, is to simply look at what do I have to do when I play? You know, am I on the wing? where I'm going to have to have tremendous skills and tremendous speed. You know, am I going to be more in, in the tight five and I need to have skills, but I need to be strong enough to lock out a scrub and be able to handle 60 to 80 minutes of contact. You know, once I understand what those physical demands are, I start to understand, okay, how much strength versus power versus speed versus skill do I need? And then fundamentally you have to, you have to take a strong dose of awareness and reflection and say, where am I? I should be spending my time. And I think that's what we're trying to do with our players all, all the time is work with the rugby coaches and say, Hey, where on the pitch, if improved, would it give them the biggest bang for their buck? And thus the team, their biggest bang for the buck. And how, if at all, can athletic performance help that? Sometimes it is about getting the player in and putting a bit more strength and size on them. Other times it's saying, hey, we don't need that extra hit in the weight room. They do better with an extra 30-minute hit out on the pitch doing some speed work. Equally so, we might say this person is an absolute gym junkie, and they would do far better to get a 30-minute hit with the skill coach working on some passing and catching. So sometimes the best thing for the athlete and the player is not the best you have to offer, Jamie. Sometimes it's a matter of a strength conditioning coach saying this person's limiting factor has nothing to do with barbells and dumbbells, right, or timing gates. It has to do with the physical ball itself. So I think having that balanced view intuitively and then from my position, the systems to assess that inevitably will, will counteract this, this problem that I see as having an unbalanced view of one's physical development. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the, the individual approach based on, on their needs. Um, 100%. And you touched on something there, obviously, the, you know, involving the, the rugby coaches in that. Um, how, how do you approach um, you know, dealing with coaches and getting your, your philosophy to tie in with theirs, so to speak? You know, one thing that I was, I shouldn't say surprised because I didn't necessarily have a, an expectation, but I was calibrated to American sport. So I, I should say the one thing that I noticed when I came over was how much value the rugby coaches placed on strength and conditioning and fitness. And I think it just speaks to how progressive rugby is and that, you know, rugby, I believe was one of the first sports to really bring in sports science 
and GPS and immediately see the value of utilizing those kind of analysis tools, not to completely run the program at the end of the day, but as a, as a massive source of guidance. So, you know, I would say that strength conditioning coaches in rugby, from what I've observed, you know, they're almost at a level of an assistant coach in a manner that I might think of an assistant coach in American football insofar as the perceived value that they bring to the table. And I think that's, that's as it should be because whether it's strength conditioning, medical, nutrition, sports psychology, or rugby, every single one of those areas has a role to play within the physical development as long as it's guided by that rugby narrative. So I'm sure there are coaches out there that don't fit this model, but every rugby coach that I have come into contact with uh, within Irish rugby has been very eager and very open to engage in understanding the physical development side of the overall rugby story. And if I can summarize the way I've encouraged our coaches to approach it and the way I've approached it is to ask this question. What, from a rugby perspective, what do our players need that rugby by itself does not develop? So I'm gonna say that one more time. What do our players need that rugby by itself does not develop? So at the end of the day, your one RM is not going to necessarily improve massively just by playing rugby, right? Your maximal velocity or your maximal acceleration uh, might not improve just by playing rugby. However, is rugby, uh, will, will one benefit from being stronger, one benefit from being faster and having better accelerative capacities? Well, I think we both would agree and say absolutely. So it's fundamentally being able to engage with them and understand those key pieces of the rugby story that need to be developed slightly outside that context. Yeah, and I think that that question you used it also highlights, you know, the priority on on the rugby because you know there are some certain things that can be developed through the rugby training, um, and and what we do is to ass, to assist that, isn't it? It's a supplemental. Um, right. Let's, uh, I haven't followed you and your work for a while. Um, you do a lot of work on queuing. Now, could you explain your kind of philosophy on, on queuing when coaching athletes? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we look at, you know, when we look at language, it is the primary source of information we use as coaches to get ideas out of our head so to speak, and into our players' bodies. You know, every athlete, it doesn't matter what sport or what level, is going to be able to think back to their coach. And I'm going to argue that their sense of whether it was a good coach or whether it was a, a less than good coach has a lot to do, at least in part, with the way that coach uses language, right? Are they a yeller, right? Or do they try to connect? Do they use a lot of information, or do they use the right type of information? What's their timing? Are they the one that's always yelling at you while you're moving? Or do they give you a bit of information before you go into a drill, let's say, and let you kind of sort it out for yourself? Uh, does their language paint pictures in your mind? You know, when you think back to that coach who made you laugh, who made it seem easy, but also made you feel like you were getting better versus the one that always made you question yourself you know is it my fault why can't i learn this skill why can't i learn this information why am i okay during practice but i can't seem to bring it on saturday during the match so i think we've all had those experiences along the continuum of good to bad 
And while it's not all down to the communication of the coach, quite a bit of it is because at the end of the day, the language is what guides the experience. So within my interest, you know, language is a very broad topic, Jamie. So typically what I look at when we say the word Q, which obviously you opened up with, I define it as the last idea you put in a player's head or an athlete's head before they move. Right. So I'm not necessarily talking about all the instruction you would do before a session or after a session or even kind of the the crowd management, so to speak, when you're dealing with a bunch of kids. I'm talking about that single last idea you put in their head with the hopes that somehow it'll make them pass better, kick better. Right. Or, or lift the bar with with improved technique. And when you zoom into that area of the last idea we put in their head, you know, there's there's well over two decades of research on this now and, and many more decades of science that underpin it. And they call this area attentional focus, which kind of makes sense when you think about it, because anytime you give an athlete or a player a cue, you're asking them to focus their attention on that that language, on that idea in the hopes that it gets them to move better. And when we look at that, it tends to fall, these cues fall on a continuum of internal cues, whereby you're referencing joint motion or muscle action. So kind of think of it like your kinesiology or your biomechanical language. And then on the other end of the continuum, we have what we call external cues. So these are cues that are about the outcome, you know, jump high or throw the ball here, or it could be on a physical aspect of the environment, push the ground away, you know, target through the center of the attacker from a tackling perspective. It's something physically in the environment. So we can kind of think of internal cues as process and external cues more as, as outcome. And let me say, for those of the coaches listening who also use a lot of analogy or metaphor, where they try to use language to paint a picture, you know, I want you to explode off the line like a jet taking off to encourage that natural rise of an acceleration. Well, that kind of language operationally works kind of like external cues because we're not necessarily drawing attention right back to the body. So hopefully what I've described there, coaches can think, yeah, I, I use language across that continuum. Well, that's fantastic, as do I. But if we zoom into to the evidence against probably 10 years of now experience applying these principles, what we know is not only uh, do external cues improve performance in the moment of receiving that, that linguistic prompt, but they also tend to improve learning, which means it makes it stick. It goes from that Thursday training session and sticks with them Saturday during the, during the match, so to speak, that those external cues tend to be the high-performance language we want to use as coaches. And that can be surprising for some because many coaches think, well, I'm trying to teach technique. Shouldn't I focus on all the nuanced parts of the body, you know, the elbow position, the shoulder position, the hand position and passing, let's say. And let me be very clear. Absolutely. You know, when you're teaching someone to pass and catch, let's say, you initially need to describe, hey, here's how you hold the ball. Here's the body position. Here's roughly where your hands and elbows should be. I think giving that overall broad technical description with some demonstration to a degree is necessary. And I don't think any coach would disagree. However, in those instances, Jamie, all you're explaining to the player is what the movement looks like or what should happen. 
And I think what coaches need to understand is that's very different than telling them how to perform that movement. And at the end of the day, we can use that internal technical language, let's say farther away, a minute, a minute and a half before the movement when you're generally explaining it. But you inevitably need to summarize all of those ideas down into one simple thing that the player can carry in their mind while they're also performing the movement. And we simply call those external cues. And, and that, for me, is what I've been trying to promote and help coaches learn how to develop over the last decade now. That's really interesting. It's one of my kind of sort of pet peeves is with, with young coaches. I've seen lots of interns come through and they've just come off their UKSA weightlifting course and things like that. And, and they they do all those intricate little details and things like that. They try yeah. and use those to coach people. Um, and it's all, it's almost like, I call it overcoaching. So you just want to find Absolutely. The, the easiest way to get your point across, um, you know, the shortest, sharpest. And, and like I say, if it's one that sticks with them long-term, then that's, that's the better way to use. So I think it's definitely something that people need to look at more and try and find better uses of their language um, yeah. through their coaching. Yeah. And, and I think you've nailed it there. You know, most, oh, I'd like to say that the degree programs I'm now seeing especially coming out of the UK and Australia, are, are far improved. You know, I was just speaking with someone today who's on an MSc in strength conditioning, and they actually had a coaching session filmed where they had to come up with a warm-up, and they had to guide a group of, of other students operating as players through it. It was filmed, and they had to go through some reflective practice. And I think that is spot on, because if you watch yourself deploying, you know, five, 10 internal cues, rapid fire. We see that, wow, I know that information is important, but is that the best place to put it? And inevitably, most of us will come to the conclusion, probably not. So find that time and, and space to explain it, but then inevitably you gotta simplify it and put a picture in the player's mind. And that's gonna allow them to bring that picture with them when they're actually playing the sport. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so any, anyone more interested in, in uh, use of language and cueing, is there anywhere you'd recommend they could kind of research that more or find more information? Yeah, you know, the, you know, the gal that I definitely consider uh, a mentor on the academic side, um, notably through all of her research, is someone named Gabrielle Wolf. So her surname is W-U-L-F. She's out of UNLV. She has a wonderful little book called Attention in Motor Skill Learning from Human Kinetics. And it's not a coaching book, so it will primarily focus on the research around internal and external cueing. However, it's remarkably accessible, and I think it will empower a coach with the science that they can pressure test with their own experience. And my book on the topic, which is going to be called The Language of Coaching, that will be coming out late this year or early next, again, from, from human kinetics. And that is my attempt to be honest to the evidence, as Gabrielle Wolf was, but to actually extend and present models around how to make it very, very practical. So if you've never done a lot of external cueing, or you've never tried to generate analogies, you know, the book actually guides people on how to, to do that with a lot of examples, a lot of pictures to bring those examples to life. And the book is designed to develop a habit of cueing, so to speak. So my hope is, Jamie, to be honest with you, that my book will serve that that need because I definitely asked that same question when I was getting into the field. 
Yeah. Oh, that's cool. We'll definitely look out for that, of course. And uh, we'll share links to uh, Gabrielle Wolf's book as well on the, in the show notes. Um, I saw one of your tweets. It might have been yesterday, actually. Um, and I'll, I'll read it if you just kind of explain the thought process behind <laughs> sure. it. Coaching equals learning. Learning equals uh, attention and time. And attention equals motivation and novelty. Just sort of explain that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I love using Twitter just to put put little ideas out there that they seem to be relevant on a, on a given day. And, and that was the, the flavor of the day, so to speak. So the coaching play on a John Wooden quote. And for those that don't know who John Wooden is, uh, he's one of the best just coaches of all time pulling together. I think it was something crazy like between nine and, and 12 uh, championships when he was the, the head basketball coach for UCLA in the 70s. And if you read John Wooden, he's just a powerhouse of recommendations on what good coaching looks like. And very much so, he was a student of of coaching and used his intuition to drive a lot of the changes. But his quote that for me I use all the time is, you have not taught until they've learned. And I love that idea because we might think that we're teaching or coaching every time we open our mouth and share information. But what that suggests is it's not enough just to share information. That information has to be shared in such a way that in this case, the player can take it on board and own that information and not necessarily need you there to remind them all the time to apply that information on a specific technique or or tactical execution. So from that perspective, great coaching should equal learning. From there then, when we look at, you know, learning, we have to talk about this idea of attention. And you only learn from the things you pay attention to. You know, at the end of the day, I I joke, I was on an earlier podcast and I talked about this idea of, you know, I've been on hundreds of flights and many of the people who attend a presentation I might give have been on hundreds of flights. But if I challenge any of them, to get up in front of the group and recite the safety briefing from that flight, Jamie. Most of them, one, they're not willing, nor could they do it. And I use that as a simple, relatable example that proximity is is not a surrogate for learning and that you can't just hear a cue over and over again or, or see a picture over and over again. If you're not paying attention to it, you cannot learn from it. So for me, learning fundamentally is anchored to attention, what you pay attention to, times the length of time that you pay attention to it. So you need context. You need to be paying attention to something. But just because it's there, Jamie, doesn't mean you're going to learn. Equals learning very much so because I believe it's the limiting factor. And then if we look at, well, what gets someone to pay attention? Well, there's really two major things that we know of that will help people pay attention. One is novelty, right? Think of your fight or flight instincts. You know, your brain will immediately be attracted to anything that is suddenly unfamiliar or unexpected. So if coaches can simply use variability, your monotone coach Uh, brings a little bit of tone, a bit of energy into their coaching session. You know, you stop a session and ask 
athletes to interact and share something with each other when you've never done that before, right? Any of those little things as a coach to capture attention briefly will, will give you that window of attention. But novelty is kind of like having a, a high sugar cereal in the morning. It's only going to give you a bit of energy. It's only going to give you a bit of attention for a short period of time. Thus, if you want that, that slow burning carbohydrate, right, your rolled oats equivalent, you got to be able to find motivation in your coaching, meaning I have to put the, the, the why and the what. So at the beginning of a session, as strength coaches, we know this. We have to convince people all the time. How's the squat going to make your scrum better? How's, how's your single leg, you know, RDL going to make your pass better? So on and so forth. I mean, I think strength coaches more than anybody else in this field have to be these mass, these incredibly gifted translators of how what appears to be non-related to a sport, how it does relate. So you have to put the why and the what. Otherwise, people just don't care. They're not going to pay attention. Because at the end of the day, think about it, even in your own hobbies, in your own life, you only pay attention to things for extended periods of time that you find fun, that you find interesting. So if someone's still listening to this podcast, we've tapped into their motivation, Jamie, at this point. But if they checked out 20 minutes ago, they lost interest, right? And that's okay. We see it with books, we see it with podcasts, and we see it with coaching. So long story short, if you put the why and the what, explain how this thing where it's a tackling drill, how it's going to relate to their end goal, strategically use novelty to capture people's attention, especially at the beginning of a session, especially if you're working with younger players. That gives you the attention. Target that attention at the most important cues and environmental features of the sport. And you do that over enough time, you know, then you're going to have an athlete, a player that's learned. And you know what? When I see a player that's learned, I can say that you've coached. No, I, I really like that. And um, I think there's something that's come out a, a lot through different podcasts with different coaches is, you know, we, we spend all that time looking at programming and, and the scientific background of what we're doing. But if we haven't got that motivation, the novelty thing, and, you know, it tied into what we're doing, you, you're fighting a losing battle. So I think it's a really good, good way of kind of highlighting the importance of those. Cool. Um, now, again, another question we ask all the guests on the podcast is what advice uh, would you give to an upcoming strength coach? Be relentless. Be relentless. You know, be be relentless in your pursuit of of knowledge. Be relentless in your pursuit of becoming the best professionally you can in both the hard and the soft skills. It's just you have to keep going. Nothing is going to be gifted to you. Uh, you know, earlier we talked about Jamie all of these great SNC programs, and the fact of the matter is, you and I both know that we are pumping out more highly qualified strength and conditioning professionals than we have jobs for. And at the end of the day, that is just going to make the battle for every strength coach that much harder. So don't take that as a battle you cannot win. I'm not saying that at all. I believe if you commit to this craft and you are you are honest in your development of yourself, great opportunities will present themselves. So number one, invest in yourself. And that means your CPD. That means your self-reflection, primarily, full stop. But then invest in your network. At the end of the day, people won't re uh, read a book they've never heard of, and they can't hire someone they've never heard about. So if you wanna be able to put yourself in the optic of professional and potential employers, 
broaden yourself. Reach out to individuals that have influenced you, whether they've written a blog or a book. Call up to someone across the water and say, hey, can I come over and, and watch you train for a week or even a day? I'm very interested in some of the training methods you have to offer. You know, When we look at conferences, try to get to them every so often. Introduce yourself to people. Have a business card. Have a good handshake. But at the end of the day, you have to be relentless in putting yourself out there to authentically meet people and authentically learn from them and as best you can control your own pathway by investing heavily in relevant CPD that will make a direct impact on who you're working with and what you're working on. But most importantly, every and say, what went well? Let me do a bit more of that. And where could I get better? How can I improve that the next time I'm in a similar scenario? I know all of that sounds cookie cutter, you know, business self-help book, but the reality is the reason those messages are propagated is because if you fully commit yourself to them, you will be on the trajectory you want. Yeah, great stuff. And yeah, I think you're right. People are often scared to kind of reach out, but you'd be surprised how many people in this industry are, are happy to, you know, lend advice or, you know, come and let you observe them coaching and things like that it really is a good um good industry for that type of thing so just get it get yourself out there and meet people and build your network um uh any any sort of books you'd recommend for developing coaches obviously mentioned um your one that's coming and the, the other one uh any other books or resources you might recommend yeah i, I think there's a, there's a couple uh number one is a book called deep work Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I think anybody that is trying to get a handle on how to find and make time to do meaningful work, whether it's writing that blog they've always wanted to write or you know the presentation they've been wanting to submit or the research paper or their doctoral dissertation, whatever it might be, I think at the end of the day, we are in a field that requires us to allocate and devote time for meaningful, deep work in our own self-development. So I think that book for me over the last 10 years has probably made as much of an impact on the way I approach my day uh, as, as any book. I think along those same lines, we talk about the soft skills. I've mentioned awareness and reflection quite a bit. I believe that a wonderful book by, uh, by Daniel Goleman is called Primal Leadership. It's a little bit of an older book to entertain the concept of emotional intelligence. I think Primal Leadership is a wonderful book for anyone, whether they're working with players or uh, or other coaches. You know, from that perspective, let me see what I have what I have sitting on my desk just to show you. I mean, a, a book I am reading right now is a book called surfing uncertainty prediction action and the embodied mind by by andy clark now i literally just started this book but from a, a cognitive science perspective that's something keeping me up at night so for those for those uh inquisitive listeners surfing uncertainty we, we can read it together remotely <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great stuff thanks nick and lastly uh where can people learn more about you yep i i'm, I'm pretty active on on twitter linkedin uh, not so much on Facebook, a little bit on Instagram, but so at Nick Winkleman, and Winkleman is spelled E-L, uh, not L-E. So if I put anything out worthwhile, usually it goes there. 
Oh, cool. And we'll, of course, share links to uh, all those and, and the books that you've mentioned in the show notes. But Nick, um, thank you so much for your time. Obviously, you know you're mid-Six Nations, so obviously very busy, but really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and share your wisdom and insights. Um, and just all the best for the rest of the Six Nations, obviously, and you know what's a, a big year for, for all, all the rugby teams out there. Yes, yes. Yeah, thanks so much. All the best. I appreciate you having me on. So tons of great information there. Uh, thank you, Nick, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, especially uh, in the middle of the Six Nations there um, and now the dust has settled on that it's it's great to finally publish it but thanks again and all the best for everything obviously World Cup year big things uh, to come uh, so in the meantime guys please get any questions to us you want answered by us or the guests on the podcast um, and of course subscribe to us on SoundCloud TuneIn iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you use for podcasts and of course give us a 5 star review and uh, keep posted with everything we're doing at rugbyrenegade.com and on our social media. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at rugbyrenegade.com Rugby Renegade Building Machines